Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Put a Fork in It edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It's been a busy week. I'm Felix Salmon. I am joined not only by the amazing Anna Shamansky. Hello. And by the one and only Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. But by everyone's favorite Slate Money guest, Mr. Paul Ford. Welcome. Thank you. Good, good. <laughs> Paul Ford, Paul Ford is, the, is the greatest person in the world. And as you will remember from previous editions of Slate Money, is awesome. But in previous editions of Slate Money, Paul, you were a lowly co-founder of Postlight. And now you are, you are much more exalted. That's right. As a co-founder, myself and the other... First of all, actually, let me say it's good to be back here. Thank you. I'd like to do my part for the Slatriarchy. Um, and I am uh, now a CEO. That's right. That happened to me. I have a software firm with a co-founder, and we decided to promote me. And how does it feel to be a CEO? Um, slightly fraudulent, to be frank. Uh, I'm do you have imposter syndrome? No, because I've met CEOs. <laughs> I'm no worse. Um... But no, my, my co-founder is the president. I am the CEO. The company started to grow up, and nobody knows what a co-founder does all day. But a CEO, someone like me who's out and about, talks about what it's doing, works with our clients, does all that stuff. I do CEO I stuff. I feel like people know what a CEO does, and absolutely no one knows what a president does. So what does a president do? I see the CEO as sort of the long-term strategic vision setter who then kind of delegates outward. The president has, I feel, more, still has ownership and connection to that, but has a lot more operational responsibilities. Okay. So they're they're really owning the operation. Okay. So next time you hear that someone calls themselves the president of a company, that think of them as like a, a, high, a high-level COO. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, let's not talk about that. <laughs> let's move on. Let's, let's uh, move on. Let's move on from me and my software company that people should get in touch with. Yeah, the totally, totally do. hire Paul to do all of your software development yes. needs. In the in the meantime, Paul is going to be telling us about the seven point five billion dollar acquisition of GitHub by Microsoft. He is also going to be 
telling us about what on earth happened inside Facebook after they bought WhatsApp and how those two pieces of Facebook didn't really work very well together. It's almost and a cautionary tale. Most Microsoft. interestingly, Paul is going to give us an incredible dis- disquisition on green shoe um, options and the IPO market in Australia, which weirdly Paul is an expert on. It's, I love Australian economics. So, um, so Better than Austrian economics. <laughs> they are. They're a lot easier. Yeah. And they're just more casual. It's more fun. It's, it's, it's economics in flip-flops. Yeah. Yeah. Just, come on, guys. Let's, I don't know. What do economists do? Can someone tell me? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, if anyone knows what economists do, just, you know, at F train on Twitter, let Paul know because none of us have a clue. Seriously, DMs are open. Um, okay. Let's start with this GitHub deal because it's huge. And I feel like a good sort of, few million people saw the words GitHub this week for the first time and and sort of said, what is a GitHub? And Paul was like, but I've been living on GitHub for the past however many years. And, and, and how do you not know about this? That's right. So this, I mean, I wrote a piece about this for, for Bloomberg Business Week and, uh, which, you know, hey, I need to say that. That's important. Document things. It's a really good piece. And thank you. So I don't have any, like, super secret inside information. I just am trying to explain to civilians what this thing is. So are you ready? Can I, can I do this? It's going to take, like, take, like, a minute. Okay. Okay. Just, like, everybody take a deep right. breath. Okay. You have one minute starting now. Okay. So programmers, you know, they write things all day. They make software and they make it out of code. Code's just a lot of words in a file and numbers and symbols. It's don't worry about that specifically. But when you're programming, you write your program and you run it. And then usually it breaks, but sometimes it doesn't. And then sometimes there's a new thing you need to do. You need to change that file, right? So what, what has evolved over the last 50 years is the idea that don't throw it away and start again, but continually and adaptively change your code. And you do that by having versions of your code. Everyone has used to track changes in Microsoft Word, right? Right. Okay. All right. You're nodding for the for the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. We're Very all, useful on podcasts. We've all used it. So, um, okay. So that's version control. It lets you sort of go back and forwards in time. Git lets you do that with hundreds and hundreds of files. Git is a program. Open source, written by Linus Torvald, same guy who made Linux. Making sense so far? Making sense so far. Okay. Git is really hard to use, except in a very simple case. Like, it's just sort of complicated. It's hard to share the files and know exactly what to do. Uh, You can. It's a great decentralized tool for keeping track of enormous sets of changes in giant code bases over time. Works beautifully. But it's abstract. And so GitHub came along around 2008, three years into Git's existence, and said, this is a great free tool. People really like it. Uh, If we put a nice web interface on front of it and, and let people list the files, look at the code, and then also collaborate and give them some tools so that if somebody changes a big code base and needs to um, get somebody else to accept that change and bring it back in and ship the nice new updated software, let's make that simple. And they did that. They did a very good job. So all of the programmers that you meet on a day-to-day basis probably are using a little bit of GitHub. Not all of them, but I mean lots, like millions, tens of millions lots of companies and so on. And so they took this very complicated abstract thing that's key to how software gets made and they made it a lot simpler. And they weren't making money, but they do have some kind of revenues. They used to be bootstrapped. They took some VC and uh, they just grew and grew and grew. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I don't think, I don't know what the financials were at the very end. They said, um, I think it was either the Times or the Journal, uh, $200 million a year towards the end mm-hmm. in revenue. In revenue, but no profits that right. anyone could see. Yeah. Um, the, so we can see how this is an incredibly important part of the, you know, coding ecosystem. And we can see how it's a much-loved product. Mm-hmm. And we can see that, you know, it has revenues. The quest, and, and so the two big questions are, why does it want to be part of Microsoft? So why does Microsoft want it to be part of Microsoft? And what makes it worth $7.5 billion? All right. So let's, first of all, does Microsoft's concept of money actually align with the concept of money that we have, like, in our <laughs> wallet? Like, I think... <laughs> You know, Microsoft issued new stock and spent 7.5 billion Microsoft coins. It's actually, this is actually an incredibly good point. I did, I did, the, I did the math. They, they issued 73 million new shares. And the cost of issuing those new shares was negative because their stock went up after they, after they announced this deal. So really, it didn't cost them anything. And they're going to be buying back shares to offset the dilution. Right. So, I mean, this is just, it's an economy unto itself. So they were able to kind of mess with the... I don't know, insert an economics term here. I'm a software person. But like, um, so they, yeah, so so Microsoft, I don't know if they like, don't over-index on the money, right? But what do they get? Well, first of all, Microsoft used to be really against open source software and only wanted people to use Microsoft products to do Microsoft things. But if you look at the CEO of Microsoft today, it's Satya Nadella came out of cloud services. Microsoft does lots of stuff with Linux and open source, and they're they're big on GitHub, and they have their own open source um, uh, repository tools and all this stuff. Like they've been playing in this world pretty seriously for five years. And the world, why play in this world? Well, because it used to be you would go get, I don't know, there's a you know, let's say you you set up Microsoft Dynamics, right, which is their CRM. Nobody knows about it. I guess it competes with SAP, but it's like this really specific world. And you're going to use their services and their documentation and their servers and their everything. But meanwhile, you got Amazon over on the side with AWS. Like, it's the infrastructure that stuff like Netflix is built on. They're getting all that money. So if I'm Microsoft, what I see is like a big open source ecosystem with Linux and lots of other stuff is is key to bootstrapping and understand and building new things in the big new world. I can't just assume everybody's going to run Windows. So this is their way of it's like it's almost like a branding move. It's like they can't be Microsoft from 1999 anymore. That world is that ship has sailed. And if they want to still be relevant, they have to. This is their way of buying relevance really quickly and then prove didn't that guy say he was gonna gain your trust because a lot of I don't know how it still is, but people used to really hate Microsoft. I mean, deeply, I, I, I re- recall. No, that's totally right. I, most people I, you know, the instinct in general, I, there are a lot of people who are have opinions on this deal. And plenty of them are like, This is the worst thing that could happen and other most most people, as far as I can tell, are just like, Well, another big thing happened with an enormous amount of money and you know, it's gonna they're probably not going to screw it up. Like, they're going to have this big thing that can live in Microsoft's world of code. They love developers. They've always been really developer-focused. And in some ways, it is. It's like this huge signal that we're going to play with the rest of the world. We're not going to just be our little, like, our giant ecosystem of only Microsoft things. We're going to be part of the whole world of software. And I think when you're thinking about 
the valuation here. This isn't something that you'd use like an accretion dilution model or something and see if it works. To, it makes sense. This is a strategic acquisition where Microsoft is saying, we have a hub of all of these developers who are also tied to larger businesses. We want to be able to be the place where the, they come so that then we can funnel them to our money-making ventures in, in like cloud and their productivity mm-hmm. services. So it's not that they ever, I think, expect that GitHub would be generating tremendous amounts of revenues or earnings. It's that it can strategically create earnings in other ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can it's plug it in. No, exactly. They can plug it in anything. They have an open source code editing tool called Visual Studio Code. And you could plug it in that way. You could also, you know, machine learning's getting big. And let's say they decide to create a GitHub area for machine learning models that could be easily shared. And then you could plug those into your enterprise Microsoft world, your SQL server and your dynamics and so on. So it's just like, we're going to help you improve your sales pipeline with these new open models that are available on GitHub. Like you can really see the Microsoft stuff happening and then they just sort of jam this in the middle and are like okay cool now we have a big software thing here so the the question i have is you don't just put code on github you can also put anything on github you can put to take an example out of thin air you can write a text page all about what happened in tiananmen square in 1989 and you can put that on github and github being a good https site nice and secure site if you want to block that page from china because you are you know firewalling the country you have to basically block the entire site and github is too big and too important to block the entire site am i right am i right so far i mean sure all this could come down the pike i I don't i don't think that the audience is big enough right like I just don't is it is it not the case that GitHub is one of the very very few sites in the world where you can publish stuff for Chinese people to read which the Chinese government basically can't censor that because they can't take it down because it's too important. You know, I really don't know. I mean, you know, everybody's very smart these days. It's it's entirely <laughs> po- I mean, is what you're asking could Microsoft start bending towards the sort of free well, I mean, they already have started bending. Sure. You know, sure. they're a big corporation. All big corporations need to play nice with the Chinese. I mean, this is a tricky one. I remember once, just for kicks, I I registered the username Al-Qaeda on GitHub and put a PGP encrypted version of the uh, Constitution up, and then now I can't remember the password. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) Like, you can... It's a giant content platform where the core thing is code. I just... I I just don't feel like this is where people are going to be putting their energies. Like, it's just not, it'll find its audience and like, but I mean, if I needed to do that and I wanted to distribute through GitHub, I could encrypt the files in other ways and, and sort of, you know, if people had the secret password on the other side, they could get them. Like, you could submit, you could transmit all sorts of stuff, all sorts of ways through GitHub. Did you want to ask something? Oh, earlier I was going to just mention that um, I haven't followed Microsoft very closely recently, but the last time I was following them closely, they seemed to... Sp- just screw things up a lot, you know, like, although the, the, my, like, yeah, but just, what about LinkedIn? So, so yeah, the greatest slate is, money episode of all time. Can we all was agree that LinkedIn, LinkedIn is kind of bad? Well, this is the question. No. Like now, now can, can we have just, I wanted to come to this, which was 
where are we now? Like two years later from <sighs> LinkedIn, what what is the verdict on that? Like, how has LinkedIn done as part of Microsoft? It hasn't changed, has it? I don't think it's changed. They've uh, they improved the design. It's a little. It's probably better overall. It's still. I mean, it's LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, so. and and to it's say and to say yeah. how it's doing for Microsoft is complicated because Microsoft itself is doing quite well. Mm. What part of that you can directly relate to LinkedIn is very hard. So a lot of these acquisitions, you're you're not just talking about literally how much money it's generating. It has to do with an entire Microsoft ecosystem. Okay, but can you just give me an example, Anna, because this is something which I do find a bit confusing, of how does the fact that LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft help the rest of the Microsoft ecosystem? I am not entirely sure how Microsoft uses LinkedIn, but I would imagine they're connecting with companies in some way or the way that companies... Oh, I can um, I can help yeah, you. Out. How yeah. about you just, yeah. No, so when they announced it, there was a um PowerPoint, of course, that got distributed. But I mean <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean you're you're talking about um look, we've all had to make our peace with things changing and now this <laughs> giant mega structure is now not as bad and, and we have to fear new things like Facebook. But right. um even though Microsoft, you know, who knows what they're doing with our private data right now. For LinkedIn you know, could you have a my um a resume that goes straight into Microsoft Word? Could you have, you know, it, but isn't this what we talked about two years ago? Has anything actually happened yet? Oh, probably, man. You got to get into that enterprise world. I mean, it, it's just sort of, you know, maybe Microsoft three sixty five Dynamics Employee Finder has an you know instant LinkedIn socket that goes right into your Excel. Right. Yeah, and I don't know what type of data they're generating that is useful in other ways. It's very hard to tell with that type of acquisition. Yeah, just they're fine. Everything. Yeah, Microsoft's fine. doing quite well, and and, <laughs> yeah. and Satya Nadella is doing a good job. I, this is the thing. It's just not. It's not. They've gotten really good at not freaking you out anymore, and so because it used to be like. Oh no, robots, big mean robots are eating everything. And that was the form, you know, that was Steve Ballmer screaming until he turned Developers, developers, yeah, exactly. developers. Like, I mean, that was the that was the portrait. But Nadella in the in the piece for Business Week, I described him as kind of Obama-esque, right? He's just sort of like, oh, he's in the poetry, he's thoughtful, yeah. he's a participant in culture, and he's just kind of got that slightly detached mode about him. The thing about I mean, Microsoft's culture was famously brutal forever. And it does seem like at some level he told everybody, you got to put your guns away because nobody cares about Windows. They've actually made a lot of internal HR changes to make the culture less brutal, like performance reviews. Mm -hmm. They changed the, they used to like rank people. Oh, the stack ranking. Yeah. For stack ranking. And whoever was at the bottom got fired. Um, So they changed that recently. It seems like that Microsoft at the the bottom line is that they're like less uncool than they used to be. Well, I think they're becoming IBM, right? There's a lot of services mm-hmm. and it's just they've got all these different and they're, they're good at pulling stuff off now. Like the Surface is a good PC. You can get this very nice laptop. It works really well. It's it's comparable in a lot of ways to, to Apple's products. They've done a, a lot of tech companies can't do it, which is mature to the next level. Like they're not the hot thing anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, this is but, but that's they've why, managed to sort yeah, of but this make is but this is up. the perfect segue, actually. So let's Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I feel like this is the subject of our next segment. Yeah, it's like Microsoft did this good acquisition, it seems like, and Mm -hmm. then Facebook and WhatsApp did this, like, (laughs) master disaster for, like, three times as much money. Facebook paid, how many, a few years ago, Facebook paid, what, 22 billion dollars for whatsapp the messaging service do i have that right yes Mm -hmm. and um, which is about what microsoft paid for linkedin yes about yes that's correct and then the two founders of whatsapp are famously anti-advertisement and facebook's like and they said you know this isn't we're different we're not going to do advertising and facebook um, mark zuckerberg cheryl that's fine this is fine it's all going to be fine and then was it this week? Well, and then basically that all falls apart. And then we learned this week that um, the co-founders basically left the company. Ryan Axon left in April last year. Jan Kuhn left in, what, September, something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, they walked away from, uh, what is it? $1.3 billion. Thank you very much. $1.3 billion because they were just freaking fed up with Facebook, which a lot of people are. Let's just postscript that. They'd so already, I, they'd already yeah. invested many billions. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's be clear here. They are like, nine billion dollars yeah. richer now. That's, they didn't need the money. Yeah, they didn't need the money. Need but the money. to be clear, if they had stayed just until November of this year, not very far, if they just hung around, you know, playing solitaire on their computers until until November of this year, they Facebook would effectively have paid them both. $60 million a month to do that. And they were like, eh, no. It's a lot of air-cooled Porsches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can buy a lot of air-cooled Porsches for $60 million. Wait, say why you're talking about air-cooled Porsches. Because um, I don't know how you pronounce no. his last name. I'm Coom, assuming Coom. Um, one of the One of the co-founders of WhatsApp, when he, on, on leaving Facebook, put up, a, I guess, an Instagram post or some kind of post using one of the many services that we use to communicate and said, you know, I really, I'm going to take some time for me and, and explore my love of air-cooled Porsches. And disc golf. Uh, and and, and, and yeah, ultimate disc. frisbee, yeah. Oh, ultimate frisbee, sorry. And uh, working on cars. He said non-tech pursuits, but then he mentioned air-cooled Porsches, Porsches and working on cars, which, I mean, they're technically tech things. Of course. Just saying. But th- so the background to this is that he always had this incredibly privacy first sort of manifesto going back years um he actually started a blog post off once with a quote from um uh what's the name of that movie oh fight club yeah he actually started a what a surprise of course he did he started a blog post with a quote from fight club saying like advertising is the most evil thing in the world it just makes you want to buy air-cooled porsches and and (laughs) and like and so he was kind of you know pointing out in as sort of in an, an elliptical way how ridiculous this ostensible reason for leaving was and it was clear that obviously he had no particular desire to tinker with air-cooled Porsches so much as he was just he had reached the end of his rope with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg basically forcing him to do the thing that they promised him that they would never force him to do. Okay, I'm just like, <laughs> I was reading this article and I know I'm supposed to be siding with these WhatsApp guys, but I feel like there are no good guys in this story. I mean, pri- like, privacy plus capitalism equals comedy, right? Like, it's well, just this- Yeah, it's like, so it doesn't, they sold their company. They were made billionaires. They were then shocked, shocked to find out that the company they sold it to at some point wanted to make money off of that acquisition. I'm sorry. Like, I also have a very hard time imagining that when they were talking to 
VC funders initially in getting cash that they were saying that we never want to be able to monetize this well, in any way. Uh, well, I mean, it was interesting. WhatsApp only, I think, took one round of funding, mm-hmm. not a very big fund round at that. It was one of the most efficient products ever. I mean, they had like served, eight employees or something. It was insane. Zillions of people. Um, and 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 they and one of the reasons you know that they did that was because they were very adamant about not maximizing profits and revenues and i'm it's absolutely abundantly clear that when mark zuckerberg was trying to persuade young Coom to sell he did make a bunch of promises the only question is whether he knew when he made those promises that he was going to break them. Well, first of all, is Yankum a child? Like, you know, look at how Facebook makes money. Also, it's also entirely possible that when they originally made the deal, the intent was to try to figure out if there was a way that they could keep it ad-free and then things changed. I don't know. I don't trust Facebook that much. But again, buyer beware. These are sophisticated people. I don't feel sorry for anyone here. I do because, like, I feel sorry for the users of WhatsApp. WhatsApp was end-to-end encrypted. It was one of the strongest, most secure messaging systems. Um, and then suddenly, Facebook comes along and says, "Well, yeah, never mind that. What we need is not only advertising, but targeted advertising. And if you're going to target advertising, then you need to know a bunch about the people using it. The whole." WhatsApp was built on the idea that we don't want to know anything about you. We kind of need to know what your phone number is so we can reach you. We don't need to know your name, your gender, your location, any of that. And Facebook, meanwhile, if it wants to target advertising at you, needs to know all of these things. So it really does completely undermine everything that WhatsApp ever stood for. It was certainly built on that. It was not valued on that. It was obviously valued on its users and their data. Well, no, there was no data. There well, was it was no clearly da- the idea that you no have a user, user base data. and at some point you want to generate data, I would imagine. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, how did that valuation make any sense? I mean, I could make an argument that it made sense purely defensively. That, you know, if, again, as, I think as, that's it. I think that like, it's, it's the same as Microsoft. Like they had 19 billion Facebook coins. Right. And they're like, <laughs> this is an enormous thing that's happening and we don't control it. And if we don't control it, Google or someone else will. Let's spend some coins. And then they got it, and they're like, yeah, we got to get it. We got to get these guys in here. We got to get that WhatsApp under the umbrella. And, you know, probably, I mean, I could easily see Mark Zuckerberg going like, yeah, this is great. It is time for privacy. We got to get some privacy in here. (laughs) What I love in that story is Sheryl Sandberg just continually brings the hammer down, obviously, where she's just like, boys, no. It's not going to scale. Yeah, we're going to have. Well, because it's not. (laughs) Look at the ground. That's the bottom line. I yeah, mean, it's, it's just, it's so good. Like, they're, everybody's like, privacy, privacy, privacy. She's like, how about all the zeros in your bank account and shut up? Right. <laughs> Which is fair enough. Like, I, I'm, look, I'm not going to try to defend Facebook's actions because, as we've seen in the last year, you, they're pretty indefensible. My only point here is that these founders went in knowing everything that everybody else knows and significantly more. And so I don't feel sorry for them. But didn't it say in the Wall Street Journal piece, that's the one we're all talking about. I'm sure yeah. we'll put a link up somewhere yeah. um, that Acton, the co-founder, that that both of them, it said, 
had clauses um, somewhere in their contracts that said if if advertising if it started to be a thing, yeah if they, they started concerned, try, if even trying to monetize yeah, this then thing they could, then they could like vest immediately and leave yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, clearly, and then when he tried to do that they were like oh I don't think you want to do that and he just gave up <laughs> yeah so well it he could have pretty sinister to me it doesn't sound like it sounds like they had something nah that just they're adults like, like get a lawyer lo- you're a billionaire lawyer. like I'm sorry like no I I just I think that. You can say that these founders had created this great product and that it was really great for its users. And I think many people would probably agree with that. And if they wanted to keep that as it was, then fine. Then they should never have taken VC funding and then they shouldn't have sold it. I mean, what a tricky world. I don't know. This to me is just like... You can't take other people's money and then not expect that they're going to want something. This is just raw human comedy at this stage. Like, I mean, it's just like they, they had the thing... They knew what they were doing. Like that's why I like Sheryl Sandberg in the Wall Street Journal piece because there's this this element with her where she's just like, "You boys, you knew what this was. You knew what this was. Don't pretend otherwise." You know. Okay, just- so so this is the question. I mean, Anna is very clear that they should have known what this was. Sheryl Sandberg is, you know, the you know Cruella Deville character saying, how, "You know, you you knew what this was." Um, and of course, you know, because these guys are now multi-billionaires because of all of this Facebook stock that they got handed. Um, Everyone's like not feeling sorry for them because they're billionaires, but they weren't billionaires when they sold the company. They only became billionaires when they sold the company. And I still have this feeling that actually, weirdly, improbably, improbable though it might sound, they actually believed Mark Zuckerberg when he made that promise. Oh, well, I'm then sure they, they were did. stupid. Okay, no, maybe <laughs> they were stupid. But, I, but no, I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm not saying they were smart. But I'm not saying they were stupid. Human. I'm just saying they believed yeah. him. Felix, if somebody came to you and said, "I need you to believe this for nineteen billion dollars," wouldn't you believe it? I, I believe would. It. Yeah, every right. anyone yeah. would. because totally okay, it. so wait. Now you agree that they believed. What has more? <laughs> what has more? Motive? Yeah, and I'm saying that they may have been stupid to believe it. That's. Yeah, I just don't feel bad for them. Like this is—they're adults. Everyone's I, I, an adult here. I feel bad for stupid people. <laughs> First With of all, nine every, billion dollars and a bunch of air cooled. Everyone should <laughs> use Signal. You can download it on your phone. Don't use the desktop version. You and just it. remember to delete the messages after you've been doing the messaging. Otherwise, if the FBI just takes your phone, they can still see. That's your right. Messages. You can set an expiration, which I love with Signal. Yeah. Well, one of yeah. the co-founders just invested a bunch of his. Brian Acton put money That's into right. Signal. Put 50, he put fifty million in the Signal, which is a <laughs> good way to, i mean if you're gonna throw the middle finger up on the way out the door that's pretty good yeah. yeah i don't know i mean just like this one sucks in in that vulnerable people who are relying on that service are, are might be more vulnerable in ways that we full, don't fully understand and it's not like facebook is super transparent about this stuff but in terms of just human beings wanting things and they getting into pickles you know it's pretty amazing so the also, the there's a lot. I mean, we're we're glossing over the parts in the article where like WhatsApp asked for bathroom stalls that reached the yeah. floor, and Facebook was and the Facebook employees are like, "You princesses, <laughs> They're like, they want privacy." It's very exactly. consistent. It's very consistent. <laughs> I was amazed by that. Um, but by looping back though to to what we were saying about Microsoft, it's, it does seem to be an astonishing reversal from a few years ago when. Microsoft was this big evil corporation and Facebook was this, you know, amazing, fun place where college students would poke each other. And now it's the other way around. And Facebook is this big evil panopticon and 
Microsoft is the friendly open source, like, you know, they're the not bad tech giant. Well, it's more tricky than that. Face, uh, Microsoft had like a 30-year run of being extraordinarily predatory and very smart and very competitive and, and a little a little or a lot destructive. Um, and they managed to do some amazing things too, right? Like, I mean, it's it's it wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good. Facebook, I just see consistently... It's, it seems to be a disaster right now. Like it doesn't know what it is, and it, it everyone seems to be really, really angry with it. But it expanded. There's never been anything that's just expanded like that that quickly. And so I think that they just don't know what they have half the time. Like how could you wrap your head around that rate of change? And they have no ability to control it or no desire to control it. Apparently, well, it's, not, it's not like the leadership of Facebook are excellent ethical systematizers, right? Like this is this is really hard. I don't know who is. I don't know ethics don't scale that well, and so it's like, what the hell do you do? And so I have empathy for them in that they're riding this tiger. I, I, the empathy starts to fade away after you watch the congressional testimony, and you're just sort of like, oh boy, we're we're in a pickle again. Like this <laughs> is like you know. This there doesn't seem to be this like collective sense of what would be the right solution or the right way out. And if you look at you know, I mean, uh, Google has just put out a set of principles governing its AI, which I have issues with, but they're clearly grappling with these issues. Um, Microsoft, as we've said, has like basically stopped being evil at this point. But remember, the reality came home for Microsoft twenty years ago. Right. Right? Um, like, that's when they got. But to Microsoft go to the is still bigger than Facebook, and right. um, you know, Amazon knows everything about everyone, and somehow has managed to avoid being tarred with this. Your incredibly evil rush to the same. Well, oh, they've no. had yeah. There have been books and articles that have portrayed Amazon as being pretty evil too. I mean, yeah. they're, they're bad to their workers, but I feel like in terms of like the privacy stuff, that like people worry about well, like Alexa the, the, listening yeah. to everything. Exactly. Um, no, but they're they're good to their users and bad to their their workers. Right. That's right. Facebook is the opposite. <laughs> because their users are not their customers no i know this is the thing it all it all it's all coming home right like that's microsoft dealt with this a while ago and they went before the judge and that felt bad and then steve Ballmer, they started to to suffer in the marketplace and then suddenly they're like maybe we're a kinder gentler microsoft right like we're probably 15 years away from this with the other giants i think it's just a natural tech company progression like when you're young it, it's like life when you're young you're arrogant and then you join a frat and you're a real bro and you're a jerk right then you finally you reach middle age you get older and you mellow right you become ibm you become microsoft facebook is in like the frat bro stage then you have a midlife crisis and all exactly excellence. you have a midlife crisis and then yeah you either flame out or you you know right. silver haired yeah and- i mean I it's feel like, like when dudes have daughters and suddenly they're feminist like that's <laughs> that's what we're waiting well, for. i mean yeah. ibm has this female ceo you know which like i mean i'm not she's not exactly gentle well but- this is the thing we're on the other side with ibm now where it's like what the hell is that yeah, I mean, <laughs> things are going bad for them now. yeah maybe they're not a great example but um, it's a progression i stand by progression. that well they're 120 years old at this point right i mean there, there are these sort of parts of the life cycle. Like, you know, maybe Satya Nadella is the enlightened humanist leader for Microsoft. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe the next one will be like really technical and be like, no, we're going all drones. Well, I'm, I'm going to plug my, my Wired article where I said that Mark Zuckerberg should resign and that he should be replaced by Catherine Mayer of the Wikimedia Foundation, who would be like exactly the leader that, my, that Facebook needs right now. Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. 
on the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's let's talk briefly about um, Paul's favorite subject, which is IPOs and especially IPOs of well, not it's not even an IPO; it's a secondary offering, secondary, offering, yeah. secondary offerings of Australian banks. Oh my God, this is great! <laughs> oh, I read so many Wikipedia pages about this. <laughs> um, this is this is a fun. St- well, it's not a fun story. It's a it's a notable story. Because a whole bunch of very senior bankers in Australia from Deutsche Bank and Citibank are facing criminal prosecution. They could go to jail. And these are not, you know, the equity capital market desk monkeys who are, you know, low down on the totem pole. These are very senior, like, you know, C-suite level bankers are facing jail for basically being part of a cartel. Um, in Australia, and no one knows entirely what they're being charged with because in Australia, it's not like in the US where the where the charges become public immediately. So it's a little bit vague. But the fact is, the bottom line is that we have a major criminal prosecution of bankers going on in Australia, and I think a lot of people are like, "Wow, is that possible?" It looks like Australia is going undergoing some kind of reckoning with the finance industry. There's been some other scandals this year. There was like a Wells Fargo-like scandal in Australia or something where banks were selling financial advice but not giving any, which to my mind is fine. But <laughs> the best advice, like, the best, that's the best financial advice. We'll just like take your money and tell just, you nothing. We'll tell and, you nothing. Yeah. It was better than the advice that they would have been giving yeah. anyway. But exactly. anyway, um, there's like a big, please stop me if I use the wrong terms because I'm not familiar, familiar with Australian banking very much. But there's a big um, commission, a big hearing on finance right now and people are mad. And it's like they're doing all the th- they're they're like the exact opposite of the United States right now, which is like quickly rolling back every regulation. Well, I would just like to be just just Australia is actually somewhat known as being a little lax in terms of securities regulations and also in terms of compliance, because like in the U.S. and the U.K., especially in the U.S., after the financial crisis, I think the, the number of compliance officers doubled. You did not see that happen in Australia. So I'm just saying that if anything, you could maybe argue. I mean, I. In this particular case, I'm not going to say anything because I don't think we know anything. But you could argue that Australia, in terms of perhaps altering some of the regulations, would actually just be catching up to the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah, I did read one piece that said, like, we we can only hope to catch up to the United States. And then I got super confused because I was like, wait, we're talking about jailing bankers. The U.S. doesn't jail bankers. Maybe right. Felix can enlighten us. So I can, I can, okay, I can make an educated guess about what happened here. And it's one of those things a little bit like when... There was the big Elliot Spitzer scandal about um, in in house sell side research, and everyone knew that it, it it was happening for years. And then Elliot Spitzer said, "You do what? This is scandalous!" And everyone said, "Wow, this is scandalous!" Um, and sometimes it helps to have like a fresh pair of eyes to kind of point at something and say, "This is pretty scandalous." And I think that what happened here, if you look at what happened, I'm, as I say, this is an educated guess. I don't know this for sure was that ANZ is this big 
Australian bank and it did a secondary offering, which means it offered a bunch of shares to institutional investors at a certain price. And that offering was underwritten by JP Morgan and Citi and Deutsche, which meant that if they couldn't find the institutional buyers out there, then they would buy the shares themselves. And it turns out and all so far so unexceptional. This is this happens all the time. It turns out that they couldn't find enough buyers for the shares at that price. And they got stuck with like 25 million shares. And this is where the problem comes in. It looks very much like they didn't tell anyone that they were stuck with these 25 million shares. And then they got all got into a room together and started colluding with each other to say, how on earth are we going to dump these shares into the market without completely destroying the share price? It turns out they dumped the shares into the market with completely destroying the share price, and the share price kind of fell off a cliff because there was this big dumping of shares. Well, there are a lot of reasons that <laughs> why the share price declined at that period. But but the the thing was that the markets didn't know that there were three enormous banks trying to dump 25 million shares, and the markets should have known that. That's a material piece of information, and it looks like the bankers were colluding to try and keep this secret and try and sell the shares secretly. But you know, I, I just—it's all great. But I just keep imagining it in Australia with with great accents, <laughs> and then it feels less bad. Like it's just you know they're such a friendly people. So it's just a casual collusion. Yeah, it's just casual collusion. Just, just imagine them wearing wearing like wearing very short shorts and throwing like rugby right. balls at each other. No, no, I'm sorry. The the Australian economy is serious, and the pro, you know bankers in Australia should not collude. I, don't want to give the wrong impression but it but i so this is this is something which you look at it and you're like actually i can make the case that this was collusion and possibly even criminal but then to make the the next step which is like we're going to take very senior bankers and try and throw them in jail for this is something which like i haven't seen i mean you've kind of seen it in spain but that was much more obvious fraud and this seems less obvious fraud yeah, I mean, as I've said, I'm really loath to make a strong statement either way because I just don't think very much information has been released. And it's entirely possible that more evidence will come out and it'll make more sense why they're going forward with this or it's possible that it's regulatory overreach. I don't know because just there hasn't been a lot of information released. It does seem odd <laughs> based on the information that has been released that this would lead to this type of prosecution. But as I said, I just don't know. The one thing we do know is that JP Morgan is not being charged um, because they seem to be the people who went to the regulators and said, um, we just discovered this and maybe we did something bad. And apparently, if, you, if, you, if you're the one who puts your hand up, then that means you don't get thrown in jail. Sure. It's like turning state's witness. I mean, it's fun to see bankers scared a little bit. That's interesting. They don't often get scared. It, it is. I mean, the threat of jail to bankers must be a, a big deterrent to them, I would imagine. And it's one which does not exist in the U.S. Exactly. So you just have to do this once. You throw one banker in jail and the rest will go running scared, perhaps? Well, I would say that if they committed a crime, that then yes. But I just feel as though you should have to actually commit a crime and be 
Well, that's why they're I'm going guilty to trial. of that crime. Yeah, and I agree. I'm You'll just have saying to that prove I it think, beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course, I'm just saying that I think the idea that it's not very revolutionary. I'm not view. saying. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much not. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not saying throw an innocent banker in jail. No, but throw a guilty but, banker. But in jail. are there <laughs> are there innocent bankers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, there are yeah. so many good bankers. I, I will. T- there's a, there's actually if you have. I'm um, talking about tech giants. If you have a Netflix account, there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix about Abacus Bank in my neighborhood of Chinatown. And that was definitely a case of regulatory overreach where Saivance started trying to charge them for stuff, which was what they, again, they were the people who put their hands up and said, we found something dubious happening in our bank. And he started, you know, charging the CEO. How's it going to turn out? What's going to happen now? Um, well, the Mick Mulvaney, <laughs> I will tell you this, Mick Mulvaney, the, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, has officially disbanded the one advisory board that is enshrined in law that he has to meet with twice a year. So, yeah, we can see where that one's going. <sighs> okay, let's have a numbers round. Um, Paul, did you bring a number? Sure, 80 million. What's that? Number of code repositories on GitHub. Oh, and okay. So 80 million software projects. And how many of those were like an inspirational idea on a weekend, which so got dropped many. on a Monday? So many. So about 79 million of them are mine. <laughs> so there you go. It's Eight, 80, 80 million different pieces of code that you could be messing with right now instead of like, you know, just checking your phone idly and looking at twitter I, I should be spending much more time on github there's just inspiration there for the finding well you just should because when they when the machines eventually take over you want to be able to speak their language it's just like economics um anna uh my num. i'm sorry my number is 395 million so those are the number of trades that jp morgan looked through in this study they did about what happened in the FX market after big market shocks like the Trump election or Brexit or the Swissy being depegged? And what they actually found was that the market players who actually stabilized markets and were actually hedge funds, that that it was actually the short term traders, which shouldn't be overly surprising. But what, what seems to have happened is that all of the like long term investors, none of them would step in until after the hedge funds had actually stabilized everything. Which I thought was interesting. So who was the destabilizing? <laughs> it was that immediately after there was obviously a shock. So people don't know what to think. So there's lots of trading going in every direction. But because there was so much trading by these funds and some other market makers, they were able to come to a le- an equilibrium price. They were able to engage in price discovery. You weren't having long-term investors doing any of that price discovery until after an equilibrium had pretty much already been set. There are some logistical reasons for that as well. But this is not always what everyone would think about when they're thinking about hedge funds, because this is actually, you could argue, is like a service they're providing to the market. Thanks, hedge funds, I guess. Um, Talking of um, major events, um, which destabilized the market, my, my number is 350 million pounds, which is like the price of an artwork that's a lot of money for an artwork um there every year in london there's this thing called the summer exhibition at the royal academy and it's this institution and what happens is a bunch of famous artists and a bunch of really unknown artists all 
get their work into the Royal Academy and it's an exhibition, but it's a weird exhibition in that everything in the work is for sale and 30% of the proceeds go to the Royal Academy and that's basically how it funds itself. Um, and so you get famous artists, you get unknowns. And then this year, one of the pieces is this um, vote to leave placard from the Brexit referendum, which Banksy has <laughs> put painted like a big heart-shaped balloon over the E and the A um, of leave. So it now says vote to love. Isn't that sweet? And, um, and, and the price of that work, if you want to buy it, is £350 million, which I don't think anyone's going to actually pay, but is obviously symbolic because that is the amount of money that the Brexit campaign claimed would be saved by leaving, which turned out to be the biggest lie in politics. So that's my little Banksy um, story for the week. Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. What's your number? My number is $935,000. That is the average amount invested in startups founded or co-founded by women, according to um, an analysis from BCG and a startup accelerator called Mass Challenge. So that was, again, $935,000. And the average amount for startups founded or co-founded by men is two point one. $2 million. So that's a bit more. And then they also looked at um, revenues and apparently the women founded startups generate higher revenue. Interesting. Because they have to because they don't have to be (laughs) seen. Fine. But for every dollar in funding that goes to a women founded startup, it's 78 cents revenue back. And for every dollar to the male ones, it's 31 cents back. Just little fun facts there. Um, Everyone knows that Female-founded companies don't get a lot of VC money, and it's not because they're not good companies. It has to do with a lot of, I believe, and there's studies that show this, a lot of gender bias out there that um, makes VCs see women a little bit differently. It's a bummer. I'm sorry to bring the house down. Uh, Yeah. Emily, can you have a better number next week? (laughs) A a less depressing number next week? Um, Please? Uh, maybe, maybe, but I just say VCs do better so that I can have better numbers okay. to share next time. So VCs, between now and next week, <laughs> could you throw a few billion dollars into women-founded companies mm-hmm. so that we can have some, like, you know, good news? Yeah, yeah. less uh, Facebook debacles and more, you know, I'll just fixes. keep talking about hedge funds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it. Thank you, Paul Ford, for being on Slate Money this week. It was awesome to have you. Thank you. And if you're a Slate Plus member... Stay tuned because we're going to talk about Howard Schultz. And um, thank you guys all out there for listening. Um, keep the emails coming. Slate money at slate.com. Thanks to Dan Schrader for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs>